Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and a very Merry Christmas to our Armenian and Orthodox listeners. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As we record our first Washington Roundtable discussion of the year on the second anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, chaos again reigns on Capitol Hill as it remains unclear whether California Republican Kevin McCarthy will ever become the 53rd Speaker of the House as a group of 20 hard-right Republicans continue to block him despite uh, some extraordinary concessions he's making uh, in terms of the power of the speakership uh, in exchange for their votes. Republicans are also talking to Democrats to see whether or not they'll help him out. Uh, President Biden is about to announce another package of weapons for Ukraine, including Bradley fighting vehicles, as Vladimir Putin calls for a 36-hour ceasefire uh, to celebrate Orthodox Christmas, as the Russian leader is said to be increasingly panicked about Russian losses and reported to have fired uh, his uh, second general, uh, the general commanding the operation uh, to win back as much Ukrainian territory as possible. Ukraine has rejected the ceasefire given Russia's history of violating all the agreements it's ever agreed to. Uh, in China, Beijing has reversed course on COVID lockdowns, allowing hundreds of millions of Chinese to be on the move, returning to their homes to celebrate the Lunar New Year. That could end in at least 1 million COVID deaths over uh, the coming months in a nation without a strong healthcare system. Some worry that the crisis will drive Beijing to seek to distract domestic ire by fanning regional tensions, especially with Taiwan. And Bibi Netanyahu is again Israel's prime minister, and tensions are also growing in the Caucasus as Turkey and Azerbaijan make increasingly clear their designs on seizing potentially the southern tip uh, of Armenia, an outcome that Iran is increasingly making clear it won't abide. And we take a look ahead on what the other big stories of this coming year are going to be. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, who holds the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend of the Center for a New American Security and also the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, uh, a must for anybody interested in the transatlantic relationship, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome back and a very hearty uh, and happy new year to all. Uh, and before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And we want to welcome aboard two new sponsors, HII and GE Aerospace. HII will be sponsoring our broader coverage and our Cavus Ships podcast, and GE Aerospace will be sponsoring our new Air Power podcast, as well as Cavus Ships. Uh, and check out our weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters each week, a program now sponsored by HII and GE Aerospace. The downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And coming soon, our new Air Power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace and co-hosted by yours truly and our new contributing editor, JJ Gertler. Okay, everybody, Happy New Year. Thanks again for joining us, Michael. Uh, you have had an extraordinarily busy uh, holiday uh, season, unfortunately, and haven't been able to put your feet up. And you certainly haven't even gotten much rest uh, over the past 36 hours of, uh, or 48 hours or however many hours of complete insanity uh, we've had this week. 
Uh, what's going on and what does this tell us really, right? I mean, two weeks ago, you were saying that, you know, for many weeks, you've been saying it's very unclear whether Kevin McCarthy is ever going to succeed. And indeed, uh, there are many people, you know, it's sort of like Kevin McCarthy is the only one who realizes that Kevin McCarthy is never going to become the the 53rd speaker. Uh, Paul Gosar reaching out to AOC for votes. Uh, Democrats making it pretty clear they're probably not going to give, not going to be helping Kevin McCarthy out. A little bit of talk about whether Steve Scalise steps into the breach. What is it we know now that we didn't know two weeks ago about how bad this is going to be uh, more broadly for the governance of the nation, uh, but also for national security? Well, uh, it's it's bad. And I want to harken back to a prescient quote from uh, Congressman Mike Rogers, who's the incoming chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, because he said prior to the election, if the majority is any less than 20 seats, it will be a total disaster. And you know he was exactly right. I mean, imagine being in the situation we're in today and we had not passed the omnibus uh, appropriations bill last year, that they had in fact passed the CR into this year. And it was Senator Kramer uh, last year who said, one of the reasons we need to pass the uh, omnibus is so that we can relieve the House Republicans of the burden of governing. And again, very prescient. And you know, you've got a big chunk of folks right now that are opposing McCarthy for a variety of reasons, but also they're really enjoying this. To them, this is a government shutdown. And these guys love a government shutdown. So let's first talk about what it means not to have a speaker before we get into what the issues are and you know, the, and the concessions that McCarthy continues to make. Um, you know, a lot of people understand not having a speaker, you know, the House really does not exist. Uh, committee assignments cannot be finalized. They don't even have a website. Uh, I actually was having lunch yesterday with a friend on, who works for a member of the Armed Services Committee, and we both had a question. I went, hey, let me just take a look at the House Armed Services Committee website to get the answer. And there is no website because there is no House Armed Services Committee right now. Uh, each committee needs to vote actually, themselves. Actually, I want to I point out right, that a lot of Americans don't realize you're a congressman uh, or a congressperson for the two years that that Congress is in session. When it's not, you're a representative elect. You're nobody until you're sworn in by the Speaker of the House. That's exactly right. So there are no congressmen. They are only congressmen elect right now. Uh, And each committee needs to vote themselves into existence at the beginning of every session. Uh, So without the existence of committees, there are no hearings. There's no uh, oversight. It means the House Armed Services Committee can't conduct their posture hearings. Uh, and which is done every year with all the services and the combatant commands, which they feel forms the backbone of their oversight. The House Foreign Affairs Committee and Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence are in limbo. Um, no reprogrammings can happen because they have to be sent to the Hill for approval and the House can't approve or disapprove reprogrammings. Weapon sales can't take place because they, uh, they can't, if they notify uh, the, the House Foreign Affairs Committee on a weapon sale, uh, they can't approve or disapprove a formal informal notification. And as you mentioned, they're only members elect. So being a member elect means you do not have a security clearance. So there are several members who have tried to get uh, classified briefings and cannot get them because they technically do not have a security clearance right now. And the House can't even pay itself. So if this continues, uh, the, the next payroll, which is coming in a couple of days, will be missed. So, you know, and, and we go back, you know, a lot of people uh, saw although, this- although not, at, at the risk of interrupting you uh, again or actually interrupting you again. I mean, right. I mean, the, there are all sorts of ways to work around that. But then again, the administration itself is actually disinclined to throw them a rope to try to help them. Right. They could be a little bit more flexible on briefings and a number of other things, as military friends of mine have have put it. But at the end of the day, right, they are abiding to the letter of the law in part because there's really no reason not to abide by the letter of that law. Exactly. And, and that's why 
at this early stage in this process, the Democrats are unwilling uh, to throw the Republicans a lifeline. I mean, they are unified. Every vote goes to Hakeem Jeffries. And, you know, as you know, soon this all becomes about 2024 and the Republicans are doing everything to ensure that they do not have a majority in Congress uh, in two years and that Hakeem Jeffries becomes the Speaker of the House. You know, and, and McCarthy was doing everything he can, you know, to align himself uh, with Trump uh, and, and the MAGA crowd. I mean, remember, we talked last year about how McCarthy actively opposed uh, the omnibus appropriations bill. Um, he opposed Dick Liz Cheney in her own primary, which is unheard of, and went after, supported her opponent, Harriet Hageman. Uh, he promised all kinds of investigations uh, into this administration, uh, all kinds of new select committees. Uh, and then, you know, with the rules package that was proposed, I mean, was proposed to get rid of the labor unions that were formed on, on Capitol Hill and get rid of the collective bargaining rights. It would set up a new select committee on uh, judiciary on the weaponization of the federal government. Uh, it would get rid of PAYGO and replace it with cut as you go. Uh, they're going to reinstate the Holman rule, which allows members to offer amendments to appropriations bills to target specific jobs or salaries of federal employees, which again will be used to try and defund uh, the special counsel and, and the attorney general. Uh, he agreed to create an oversight committee on the origins of COVID, which would be stacked with 12 Republicans, but only five Democrats. Um, and, you know, most recently, he just made a concession to the Club for Growth, which is an ultra conservative group that plays in Republican primaries to elect ultra conservatives in primaries. And Kevin McCarthy has a, a leadership pack um, that he's uh, that he's unaffiliated with that um, raises money and supports, you know, moderate and more mainstream uh, candidates in Republican primaries. And he to get the Club for Growth support agreed that he would no longer do that. So from now on, in Republican primaries and open seats, only the Club for Growth will be able to play. But Kevin McCarthy and his folks will not be able to support moderate and reasonable candidates. And still, that's not enough. So now more concessions are being discussed uh, that are on the table right now. Uh, and there is a call that's going to take place uh, this morning where they're going to lay out some of these concessions. But even if they are agreed to, they will still not be enough to get all 20. But one of them is to take the motion to vacate uh, the chair down to one member which McCarthy had said previously was a red line, but now he's willing to agree to that. He's willing to offer the Freedom Caucus two seats on the Rules Committee. Uh, he's willing to have a vote on term limits. He's willing to have a vote on a balanced budget. He's willing to make major changes uh, to the appropriations process to guarantee that there'll be 12 separate bills, 12 separate votes, and they all be considered under an open rule so that the Freedom Caucus can have any kind of amendment they want considered on the floor. Uh, and he also agreed to have all earmarks voted on by a two-thirds majority. Um, and the most recent uh, discussion last night was a dramatic cut in defense spending uh, is being pushed out there that they would bring us back to FY22 enacted levels. And when you account for inflation, that could constitute an over $80 billion cut uh, in, in defense spending. Um, so <clears throat> that and, 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 and that's still not enough because now there are other demands coming on the debt ceiling. Uh, Matt Gates is insisting that he get a subcommittee chairmanship on the Armed Services Committee. The Freedom Caucus wants one of their folks to have an appropriation subcommittee chairmanship on health and human services. And the Freedom Caucus wants four of the seats on the Rules Committee, and there's only nine. So they would essentially almost have half of the Rules Committee uh, be governed uh, by their folks. It's a game of whack-a-mole. Every time they agree to one thing, uh, another thing begins to pop up. And this has serious implications, you know, not only for what we talked about, what it means right now to not have a speaker and things Congress can't do, but once this is resolved eventually, this could take weeks, you know, to get resolved. But what's this been going forward? How are we going to raise the debt ceiling? Even before all this, uh, people in the leadership were telling me the way they're going to raise the debt ceiling next year is to do it through a discharge petition. So the Republicans wouldn't even bring it up 
the Democrats would have to sign a discharge petition. You need 218 signatures to force a vote. So then they would get six of the moderate Republicans with a wink and a nod to sign it. And that would force a vote on the floor. They're already talking about year-long CRs and anomalies for year-long CRs, and they haven't even gotten started yet. Uh, so, you know, the ability to govern and the basic functions of government are truly imperiled right now. Um, Dove, uh, you were a uh, former uh, comptroller uh, and obviously a lifelong uh, Republican and a leader. I mean, full disclosure, you were one of the anti-Trump crowd from the beginning as a as a classical uh, conservative Republican. Um, I mean, it is the second anniversary of the January 6th in, in, in insurrection. Uh, and, you know, more of those folks are being prosecuted at the very time that the, these 20 members are among those who are calling uh, those insurrectionists uh, patriots uh, I- I- increasingly and holding the system hostage. What do we now know? What more do we know now than we did two weeks ago? And what do all of these things functionally mean for Mike McCord and the team uh, in the department? Because one of the things that Mike warned at the Reagan Forum was, look, the worst case scenario is to get a year-long CR uh, and, and let's try to get some budgetary stability. And it looks like any of the budgetary stability we might have uh, might be seriously imperiled. What do these, you know, what more do we know now than we did two weeks ago? And what is it that folks should be girding for over the coming year, especially if you're sitting in any important office in the Pentagon? Well, I think the first thing we know- Or, or even in allied capitals, right? I mean, this is mana yeah. from heaven if you're Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. Yes. Uh, well, the first thing I that we know is that whereas the insurrection, however many people were involved uh, in January 6th did not fundamentally bring down the government, these 20 odd people are doing just that. And they're stopped by stopping the business of government. They're doing far more damage than knocking out some statues or defecating on Nancy Pelosi's desk or whatever. Uh, This is a a far more serious threat to our democracy, in my view, uh, because they're essentially saying we don't want government. These are anarchists. They're not Republicans. That's number one. Uh, Number two, for my successor's successor, Mike McCord, who's a wonderful comptroller, by the way, uh, to be honest, uh, if I were sitting in his shoes, I would pray just for the year long uh, CR simply because if they actually work on the budget, they could act they could cut it below, as you said, to uh, lower levels than than fiscal 23. Uh, This is really the devil in the deep blue sea. And whatever happens with with the House, uh, it's going to be exceedingly difficult to see the kind of increases that we know we need on on defense. I mean, we're talking about spending money on space, spending money on strategic forces. We've got to expand the Navy. We've got to spend money on AI. We've learned from the Ukraine war that uh, we have to have stocks and we have to have a much more robust industrial capacity than we have. I mean, the list of requirements is, is growing, not, not slowing. And uh, the worry, of course, is that if these crazies somehow have, you know, somebody like Getz taking over one of the subcommittees, uh, you're talking about potential cuts at a time when we should be doing going in the opposite direction. And of course, if you're Vladimir Putin uh, or Xi Jinping, and I'll let Patrick expand on whatever I say about Xi Jinping, um, if you're one of those guys, you're saying, my God, the opposition is, is disappearing before my eyes. 
I mean, after all said and done, our whole strategy in supporting the Ukrainians is to provide them with more equipment. We're, we're inching, finally, inching towards sell, sending them some uh, armor. Uh, maybe it's because even the French are sending armor now, light, light armor, but still armor. Um, and this could all come to a grinding halt because those 20-odd people also don't want to spend any money on Ukraine. In fact, they're a bunch of isolationists. So, you know, McCarthy's been captured. Uh, the Republican Party is a hostage, but it's not just the party and it's not just an individual and it's not just Congress. It's America. Uh, Jim, uh, let me bring you into this uh, discussion. We ended the year with, uh, you know, we talked a lot about the lessons about how it's changed Washington. Everybody took a bite uh, at that. Uh, obviously, over uh, the holidays, we saw some rather ruthless Russian attacks, even on uh, what was sort of the Western Christmas, uh, December 25, and even on New Year's Eve, many Ukrainians uh, spent it in the dark. Uh, you, you know, Ukraine certainly improving its capabilities to defend against these Russian onslaughts. Uh, Putin proposing a ceasefire uh, uh, that nobody believed would be uh, accurate. Everybody is holding tough in the administration. Does look like, you know, I mean, something that Dove has been saying for a long time. It takes the administration forever to get there, but at least they're doing some of the right things. One patriot opens the door for more. Um, you know, the French moved on armored vehicles, and that certainly opens the door uh, for the United States to go to Bradley's. And folks are even now talking about combat aircraft. Um, and, and Ukraine doing some stunning raids very deep into Russia uh, and killing some 90 uh, Russian soldiers uh, or service uh, members uh, in, in the process. My attitude is don't start a war if you don't want your, your teeth knocked out. Um, where where are we going? There's this sense that Putin is panicked. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, Dove uh, wrote in the Hill uh, about news reports that a second Russian general, that Surovkin, has been uh, fired. Uh, we've yet to see confirmation on that. Where are we going, and what does all this turmoil that we're seeing in Washington mean for a long-term strategy among allies that has been actually, you know, despite the hardships, the Europeans are staying right there uh, in terms of backing the United States. Again, I mean, the French move makes that abundantly clear. Well, I think, I think the most important thing is how the allies are looking on this chaos in Washington. You know, I, I would suspect that many of the allies and capitals both NATO allies and others there in, in Europe, they don't quite understand the US system anyway. I think a lot of Americans don't understand the, the U.S. system on the Hill. Uh, they, they, they don't understand and they're confused by what's happening. But I think, I think for the allies, for those sitting governments there, this is, this is a, a, a confirmation for them that what they thought might be over with the election of Biden, with the midterms turning out the way they, they did, that perhaps that Trump era, this, this craziness in the United States has, was, is passing and there's some sanity uh, ahead. I think this chaos that they're seeing right now and the implications that were just laid out of past few minutes ago about it impacting America and our ability to govern, that has got to be uh, uh, scaring the crap out of them, uh, that, that in fact, it's not over those Trump days and, and that chaos in the United States over the past five, six years, that's not over, uh, that in fact, it's just changing its spots a bit. And in fact, it's gotten into the blood system now. Uh, like you were pointing out, it's not just insurrectionists attacking the Capitol. It is inside the Capitol now. It is inside the American governance system. It's in the bloodstream now. Uh, 
Uh, and so this is something that there must be horror, not just in allied capitals that were hoping that they were watching the U.S. kind of work it out over the past you know, four years with Biden. But you can imagine in Kiev right now, uh, they are probably looking on this with great horror, too, um, not knowing how this is going to play out in the next two years in terms of support. Um, I, I, you know, it was just laid out that we've got these isolationists coming in, the small group of isolationists that have have now uh, captured the speaker and, and now holding America hostage. And uh, certainly they're beginning to see that in Kiev and it's gonna portend uh, tough times for them. And of course, we've already said that for Putin, he certainly is, is rubbing his hands in glee. So I, think, I, so I think right now, as we look at what's happening on the Hill, the impact in Europe as they're trying to figure out the American system and they're trying to figure out what does this mean for the alliance, there has got to be a lot of late nights uh, in the MFAs and the MODs as they're trying to figure out what they what they can tell the prime minister in terms of the fate of the United States and whether supporting the U.S. is something that's smart. Should they begin to hedge? You know, for those who have wanted to have a, um, you know, a strategy where they don't want to be dependent on the United States. Of course, the Ukraine war showed that they absolutely are dependent on the United States when it comes to military things. And now this dependency looks like they've they've tied themselves to this this monster walking around with big feet, smashing everything as the, as it figures out that, that the governance isn't going to work in the United States. And now the allies are saying we've tethered ourselves to this thing. Uh, certainly we need to hedge. So I, I think really uh, that's that's what's really on the minds of people in the alliance and in Kiev and in Moscow. I, I just want to ask, Jim, so you think that this supercharges, does this supercharge in some way Emmanuel Macron's call uh, for Europeans uh, to get their act together? Uh, because one of the points that he makes is, look, America is central. It's our closest ally. NATO is the core. But we also need to build these capabilities up so that we have uh, some degree of sovereign flexibility. And that's in part driven, A, because America is going to go to Asia and focus more on Asia and Europeans should do more to support their own security. But it also is undergirded by a sense that America actually might not be reliable over the long term. You were there in dealing with Europeans when the BCA went in, uh, Budget Control Act. And, yep. you know, and, I, and you and I would talk uh, at, at that point. And a lot of our European allies were like, what the hell is this? So do you think that this actually gives impetus, even though sometimes Europeans are very skeptical of, quote, French leadership? Do you think that this actually prompts people to sort of dig deeper and sort of be like, hey, you know, this French guy's kind of got a point? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely right. And, and then it's a pity that as the Europeans say, we've got to get our act together. We've got to do more for our own defense. We've got to strengthen ourselves as a continent, both economically, et cetera that instead of doing that because it's the right thing to do, they're doing it because they can't trust the, the trajectory of the United States. And so that's what motivates them. What a pity that that's the motivation. But Vago, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we're gonna hear from the French and others saying, listen, um, we, we're gonna, th this, is, this is not a blip what we saw with Trump and all that. This is the course of the United States. And this is gonna be the course for a long time as they struggle to figure out who they are we have got to do more to uh, untether ourselves um, from this giant uh, that is beginning to uh, walk around uh, and uh, smash things. So, uh, so yes, uh, that, that's absolutely right. I think strategic autonomy, <laughs> hopefully they'll rename it uh, as they have many times before, but I think they're gonna have to return to that kind of thing and say, look, 
this isn't just some idle ideology. This is something we're going to have to try to figure out. Um, um, Patrick, um, I'm going to uh, bring you in and then uh, we're, we're going to go to Dove. But how is this uh, all being reflected uh, in uh, China? China is extremely adept a, at, at you know, creating its own narratives for domestic consumption. And as we saw in COVID, <laughs> in a fairly overnight matter, we can go COVID is terrible. We should avoid it at all costs. No, it's quite survivable. Uh, but any opportunity to characterize the United States in a negative light is something that is seized upon. How is Beijing taking advantage of this uh, in terms of the narrative, in terms of the United States, uh, and, and the reason why the United States should no longer be considered the leader, uh, the world's leader? Well, objectively, before we get to China's calculation, we live in a dangerous world already, even if the United States is doing its very utmost. Uh, when we're non-governing and dysfunctional, this is an unforced error on top of a dangerous world. So we've already seen what can happen when uh, there's uh, a perception of U.S. weakness and withdrawal from Afghanistan, focused only on Asia. You know, Putin goes into Ukraine. Um, deterrence is not guaranteed. So the Chinese now, stepping back to where we are at the moment, they they saw the COVID wave, they saw the domestic protests, and those the slowing down of the economy. Um, and the fear of uh, slower economic growth going into 2023 meant that Xi Jinping was going to bite the bullet. And, you know, it was Stalin who said that, you know, one death is a tragedy, one million is a statistic. Well, in China, one to two million, unfortunately, is a statistic. And, and Xi Jinping knows that he can get through this uh, terrible winter, you know, barring some new um, uh, variant of, of COVID that comes out of this. Um, because they are heavily vaccinated. Yes, not the best vaccines. And now they're rushing them, uh, you know, under Chinese labels, but made in Europe uh, to try to uh, inoculate more uh, Chinese from this uh, COVID wave. But they're hoping, and Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party are hoping that by the end of 2023, they're again the engine of growth in Asia Pacific. And that's their betting here. And they that's, that is what is fundamental. And that's also what is driving this charm offensive, this breathing space that that the Chinese want and that they're using. And that's why they're receiving Secretary Blinken so well in Beijing. That's why Chen Gong, uh, the Chinese ambassador to the United States until just now, uh, is being uh, going back uh, as foreign minister. And he wrote a love letter basically uh, in, in The Washington Post about all the great things he, he heard and saw in America this past year, um, because they want this breathing space. They want to talk now, fight later. Um, and we can get back to uh, what that means for our own preparation and planning, because there's a lot going on that I can talk about in terms of the U.S.-Japan alliance, the Philippines, South Korea and Australia. Just this week uh, is incredible what's happening behind the scenes and, and in some cases uh, in high level meetings uh, in the coming week. Patrick, um, I'm going to get back to you in a minute so that we can delve into some of those issues, because obviously some folks feel uh, that uh, uh, that there would be a conflict uh, that, the, that the Chinese may fan uh, a conflict with Taiwan, uh, looking at an earlier window, seeing U.S. capabilities against them building, and then maybe try to take advantage of an earlier window to take Taiwan by force. But, but Delph, I want to go to you because you wrote a, a great piece uh, that ran uh, in The Hill, Putin's changing generals fails, uh, fails to fix Russia's uh, military performance in Ukraine. And that certainly uh, is the case, right? Putin brought in a new general in order to be able to fix it. These are just news reports uh, at this uh, point. And, and we've tended to uh, deter ourselves uh, through this 
uh, process. Again, as I mentioned earlier, you were one of the voices who's consistently said the administration consistently does the right thing. They just do it a little bit too slowly. Um, Nigel uh, Gould-Davies of uh, the International Institute for Strategic Studies wrote recently uh, in the New York Times on January 1st, Putin has no red lines and we shouldn't self-deter effectively was his message. What, what does what does the coming year hold for us and what's the mindset everybody has to have from your perspective on this? And Jim, if you want to dive in on this, you're, you're more than welcome because this is going to be a prolonged struggle. Putin is increasingly preparing the Russian people for a long struggle. Um, what, we're, what, how do we be, need to be thinking about this through 2023 and, and beyond? It is something we discussed last year, but given recent developments and some of the authorization of, of weapons, I thought it's something that's important to discuss. Well, it is important. Um, th there's only really one report out there that uh, General Surovikin, uh, who uh, is the current commander, uh, has been replaced. But in the 10 months that they've been fighting, uh, Putin has already replaced two of them, two commanders. Servikin's actually the third. So uh, that's point number one. I mean, you're changing, you know, I have a simile in my in my piece about the 1961 Chicago Cubs that were terrible and changed managers nine times, but that didn't change their performance on the field. And even with Servikin, who's uh, considered to be pretty brutal uh, and replaced brutal generals as well, um, nothing much seems to be changing. And that tells me that if Putin is changing his generals, he may not be as uh, uh, in, in as much of a bubble about what's going on in Ukraine than people think. And I think when you change your generals, uh, even if he's not going to keep Surovikin somewhat longer, um, you're showing signs of panic. Uh, what are the Russians doing now? They're digging in. They're digging in on the defensive. They're hardly, you know, they're losing people, a lot of people, because the Ukrainians are firing into Russia. By the way, something the Biden administration said, oh, if they do that, we'll, we'll have World War III. Well, World War III hasn't happened, and it's not going to happen. And the Ukrainians see that it's not going to happen. So Mr. Putin is, is holding out, um, kind of like McCarthy in a way, you know, uh, maybe on the 12th ballot, he might win in Ukraine. Um, and, and so, you know, you've got this, this goal on, on the one side of a, of a president of Russia who doesn't really know what to do except to hold out. And now it's not clear how long that can go on. On the other side, you've got the Ukrainians who are feeling their oats. And now, at least for the moment, unless the crazies take over the House and, and do something to disrupt all of this, the Biden administration is moving ahead, as are the French and as are others. And so uh, I think... Uh, I still believe that this war could be over by 2023. I think the real question is, will the Biden people pressure Zelensky uh, to uh, cut a deal? They can't go behind his back because that's what happened in Afghanistan. They can't do it twice. Uh, but will Zelensky give in right now? He's feeling his oats and as he has every right to. Um, how much more can, of Ukraine can the Russians destroy? And each time they, they kill more women and children, they just get the Ukrainians' backs up even more. Um, and so uh, at some point, Putin may realize that changing generals isn't going to do the trick and he's got to sit down and talk. 
Um, to your uh, Cubs uh, analogy, uh, one of America's greatest teams, founded in 1876, won in 1907, 1908, and then it was 2016, right? You have to reverse those two numbers uh, by the time uh, you, you got to victory for the poor uh, uh, Cubbies. Um, really quick, Jim, uh, give us your sense. And Michael, um, any more we know regarding Ukrainian uh, Ukraine aid and, uh, uh, and Republicans this coming year in terms of the rhetoric uh, and the debates associated with the speakership. But Jim, really quickly, Mike, because I, I do want to get back to Patrick uh, and talk about um, a little bit more of the news from the week and then get your predictions on what you guys think the big stories of the of the coming year are going to be. Go ahead, Jim. Um, just quickly, I think changing generals is something that we see often in uh, in warfare. The U.S. did it during the Civil War and in World War II. Uh, this, is, this isn't something new. And I and I would I would say to me, it's not so much panic uh, with Putin. I think he's pretty steely eyed. I think he is going in there and uh, he's 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 he's, you know, doing doing the job in terms of getting rid of of these for these uh, generals who he feels are non-performing. So I, I think it's a steely eyed approach. Uh, and I, I, I think this is something that we're going to see more of uh, probably until he finds his grant, as they say, uh, back during the Civil War days. Um, in terms of what the next year looks like, uh, I, I'm really concerned about uh, what's going to happen in the House. And I will talk about that again. But, but uh, if we have the House tied up in knots um, and we can't provide the assistance that Ukraine needs, then it's a death by a thousand cuts uh, for Ukraine. Uh, they're going to need the ammunition. They're going to need this, this continued trajectory towards more sophisticated and more appropriate weaponry for an offensive. I mean, this armor that's gone in, the Bradleys, the AMXs from France, martyrs coming in now from, from Germany, this is gonna help them with an offensive. This is gonna carry the forces forward behind armor to, uh, to try to make some progress uh, as springtime comes around. And so we've gotta keep those going in there. We gotta provide the ammunition there. And eventually we gotta get the tanks in there. Uh, and I think, one thing that we can take away from uh, providing this, the Bradleys and the AMXs is that it has given the, this uh, cover for the Germans to provide armor. They have been saying all along, they need one of the other allies to provide armor first. We've done that, but now let's get Leopard 2s in there. Let's get the Abrams in there uh, so that we can have an offensive. Uh, if, and if that doesn't happen, and if our, our support uh, slackens and Europe can't fill the gap, uh, boy, this is going to be uh, just more tragedy as we have a stalemate break out there in Ukraine that will just bleed that country dry. And that's what Putin wants. So for me right now, after what's happened on the Hill, I'm really looking at the House of Representatives uh, and, and hoping that we can somehow straighten it out, uh, that we can get, um, get uh, the support back to Ukraine without it being unduly held up by Republican shenanigans. Uh, Michael? Well, look, all funding for everything is in peril right now, and that includes funding for Ukraine. And if uh, these concessions continue and the Freedom Caucus is given more power, then the rhetoric around Ukrainian funding, uh, funding for Ukraine will uh, intensify and become much more difficult. Now, you know, what everybody forgets at the same time, we do have a Democratic White House. We do have a Democratic control of the United States Senate. So uh, if Congress is able to uh, convene itself and begin the legislative process, I do think that there will be continued funding for Ukraine, but uh, I'm glad we got this package passed last year and didn't tie it to an Omni uh, and a CR into this year, 
because uh, then we'd be uh, in serious trouble. So hopefully that money will last a long time because I think it's going to take a while for Congress to get us act together on any type of legislation, let alone uh, funding for Ukraine. Um, Patrick, uh, I want to uh, keep things moving because we've still got a lot to discuss before we uh, end, uh, wrap it up for the week. Um, it will walk us through, uh, first, what do you put, right? I mean, you and I were both uh, at the uh, Bank of America's uh, annual uh, Defense and Aerospace Outlook uh, conference. We're part, we've been partnered uh, on that conference uh, from the uh, very beginning of it. Uh, and it was another fantastic uh, get together. And you were on a, a great China uh, and Russia panel with uh, Evelyn Farkas, Zach Cooper, uh, and Tom Mankin. Uh, and it was uh, a terrific discussion. Uh, and one of the questions that came up uh, was uh, whether or not the Chinese will uh, accelerate their plans that, you know, COVID goes badly, they need an external distraction, they see the United States building up capability, and they actually decide that it's not 2027 or 2025, America might be too strong then, hey, let's just move now, let's bite this bullet, the Taiwanese might help us out with a pro-democracy uh, president, uh, you know, kind of give us this sense on uh, quickly on, on on Taiwan, because you were sort of skeptical about those kind of timelines, and also more broadly, some of the other things that are happening in Asia that we've got to pay attention to in terms of uh, Korea's shift, Japan's acceleration. Uh, there's a lot of activity going on. Uh, and I do have to get your thoughts really quickly on AUKUS as well, where, uh, you know, Jack Reed and Jim Inhofe are just warning, hey, you, you know, this, this doesn't look like it's going uh, where we, we need it to be going. Take it away. I'm not skeptical about the timelines of what China is trying to do. I'm just uh, skeptical about those who think they know there's a date certain when China may move. China is going to keep its options open about when it wants to use military force. Um, in fact, if I can generalize about Russia and China right now, these are revisionist powers trying to gain greater spheres of influence and for China reclaim uh, Taiwan as part of a unified China. And, and they're trying to bust our coalitions. Um, you know, Russia is trying to wear us down in the transatlantic sense. China is trying to preempt our alliances and coalitions from really forming to stop them and, and could possibly intervening to stop them in a Taiwan contingency. So this is a very urgent, important problem, even though we don't have a date on a, a conflict and it may not be in this decade. It could be pushed and we hope it will be pushed and uh, in, in delayed for indefinitely, but well into the future. But we can't count on that. And right now, um, the, the skepticism about Taiwan's uh, capabilities are real, and that's why Ch Taiwan is now seized with urgency for civil defense and for anti-access uh, weapons. That's why our money is needed to make sure that we can provide them with the arms that can provide uh, a porcupine strategy in reality, not just uh, in theory. Um, and China, meanwhile, is stepping up under Xi Jinping's orders to be ready for the military option by 2027. And, and yeah, they could go earlier than that. They could go later than that, but they're going to be more capable. And I think right now they're using this breathing space period, at least in 2023, at least as we start this year, to negotiate, to talk down the coalition from forming too, too strongly against China um, and build up their economy again, even while the PLA continues to march to the order to be ready for force if necessary. Uh, in the future. And that force could be, you know, in, in imposing domestic law, uh, you know, point by point in terms of a, a blockade, things that could escalate, that could stare down Japan and isolate Japan, stare down the Americans. Uh, and these things are ultimately related. So they're going to be watching. What are we doing at home? Are we governing or non-governing? Are we 
we spending money or not spending money on defense? Are our allies going to be ready? Are we distracted? Uh, are we withdrawing? All of these issues are going to be put into the calculations in Beijing. And uh, regarding the uh, rest uh, of uh, Asia, what they're doing, and really quickly, uh, an, an, uh, your, you know, your take on uh, the concern that both uh, uh, the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee and the ranking member are expressing about um, AUKUS. Yeah. And th- so there was a December 21 letter, now retired Senator Inhofe, uh, but Senator Reid continues to be so important in the Senate Armed Services Committee, um, warning President Biden that we're, we, we have no submarine industrial capacity to spare. Um, we have a 66 fast attack submarine uh, requirement, minimal requirement, and we've got 50 subs now, and we're going down to 48 by 2027, this period of peak danger. Um, so it makes no sense to be taking our Virginia-class subs and transferring them to our great ally, Australia. They're going to have to be another solution. And we're only two and a half months away from that announcement of a, dis- of a solution. So you've got Defense Minister Marles in Australia today saying, don't worry, we have other plans. Um, we got other recommendations. We're going to go forward with a nuclear-powered sub-deal. Watch this space. We're only 10 weeks away. So that's where we are on, on AUKUS. Um, and I don't think um, Reed and Inhofe were uh, being skeptical about AUKUS, but they were pointing out that this is not supposed to be um, uh, something that's harmful to our security. It's AUKUS is, you know, the Australian-UK-US security partnership is supposed to be value-added. So make sure it is value-added. That's what they're saying. Um, U.S.-Japan having a summit meeting next week. Biden, Prime Minister Kishida is coming here, having uh, well, having visited uh, France, Italy, U.K., Canada, and U.S., basically all the G7 countries. He took care of Germany uh, in November with, with high-level meetings. Um, and so, uh, and, and Japan's hosting the G7 in May. This is part of a wind-up for cooperation on the high-technology critical materials, semiconductor chips. Uh, and these were uh, part of uh, a bilateral agreement just announced this week between um, Secretary Romando uh, and METI uh, uh, Director uh, Nishimura of Japan for even quantum computing um, cooperation, which is too difficult to explain in short, but um, we are both trying, US and Japan trying to get to a workable quantum computer in this decade before the Chinese and the Chinese are just announcing yet again this week, uh, another breakthrough that they think they can break encryption and so on. So this is critical technology along with things like the next generation semiconductor chip, which US Japan are gonna cooperate on. Meanwhile, um, the Philippines, you know, President Marcos just got back from China collecting 20 billion plus dollars of uh, of deals. Uh, Sounds very much like Duterte's promises, but Marcos is also working very closely with the Alliance. Watch this space in the next few weeks. You're going to hear some new announcements, I predict, about the next step of enhanced defense uh, cooperation agreement, uh, access for U.S. forces. South Korea is governing a drone drama right now. President Yoon uh, is uh, furious, understandably, that uh, North Korean drones on, on December 26, one, at least one of them flew into the presidential no-fly zone. Um, but meanwhile, North Korea has actually fired its number two official because a South Korean drone went into and filmed a North Korean military facility. So there's this is on top of the missile drama of the past year. And President uh, Yoon is getting ready for Kim Jong-un's possible nuclear uh, sort of parade that could uh, be triggered right. later this year. A, a big parade is actually on, on tap for a month from now. Um, and we're going to see more drama here on the Korean Peninsula. So all of our allies, our coalition partners, uh, are uh, working uh, 
uh, very hard to strengthen their defenses working with the U.S. That's the good news. But when the United States put so much priority on building up allies and partners as part of our security strategy, it makes it all the more important not to let China, Russia, North Korea chip away at our coalitions and alliances. And that's really the, the main struggle that's going on here. Uh, I'm going to go uh, quickly uh, along uh, the line. Uh, Dove, I know you want to add a point, but this was my concern with AUKUS from the very beginning. The United States is building uh, a ballistic missile submarine and it needs two attack submarines a year. That's five attack submarine equivalents and can't do anything that distracts that plan. And I think that's what's being reflected uh, in uh, the Reed Inhofe letter. And, and, and I should have been a little bit clearer in how I set that uh, up and why I think there's a role, as we've heard from Misha Oslin, uh, that there's a role for Japan uh, in the AUKUS submarine deal. And I believe there's a very important role for France to play uh, with its uh, highly capable compact nuclear reactors. Dove, I, I know you want to weigh in very briefly, weigh in, because I've got to go quickly along the line and we're going to lose Michael in a minute. Go ahead. Just very quickly, Jack Reed, uh, as you may know, uh, has uh, a lot of people who work on submarines in, his, uh, in, in Rhode Island, his constituency. He is not against AUKUS, but I think uh, both he and Roger Wicker, who uh, will be the new chairman of uh, new ranking of the Armed Services Committee, both are committed to AUKUS, but really are deeply concerned about the submarine issue. And so I suspect that the Australians may well be looking to, the, to someone else for their right. uh, nuclear subs, probably the French, maybe the Brits. Let's uh, let's move uh, very quickly. What the big stories of the year are going to be, Michael, Jim, uh, Patrick, and then Dove. But we've got to do it in a couple of minutes because we're losing a couple of you really fast. What are the big stories of the year going to be? Michael, start us off. Well, look, I think the, the big story of the year is going to be what we started off talking about on the podcast is going to be the dysfunction of Congress. I mean, we're facing major challenges from China and Russia. Uh, the, the war in Ukraine will continue. Uh, there's tremendous challenges at home with education, the environment, healthcare, crime, inflation, poverty, and Congress's inability to deal with that uh, will be front and center. Jim? Slow progress uh, in Ukraine, uh, slow progress in the White House in providing assistance, uh, as well as on the Hill, and continued war crimes that we're going to see in Ukraine at the hands of the Russian soldiers there. Patrick? I think we're going to see incidents on the peninsula uh, in around Taiwan and Japan, and there's going to be a, a new normal uh, after we respond to these incidents or fail to respond to them. We'll have to wait and see how this plays out. And you think we will respond to them? I, I'm sure we'll respond to them, but whether we'll respond to them effectively, uh, decisively uh, and convincingly, that's going to be the question. And I, you know, they're testing this in the way that North Korea just tested South Korea on the drone. They know what they're doing, right? They, they knew that there was going to be a vulnerability, that the South Koreans were not ready for a drone covertly going across and, and, and spying right. on essentially the presidential office. Dove? Yeah, a few things. First, Sweden and Finland will come into NATO. Second, I think the Russians will have to sit down before the end of the year and uh, give way to the Ukrainians to a great extent. Third, look out for trouble in the Middle East. you got to crazy. We think we have a crazy government. The Israelis have an even crazier government, and there could well be an intifada before the year is up. Um, do you think that Turkey and Azerbaijan would consider moving, uh, looking at all the distractions uh, everywhere, would consider moving on Armenia? And do you think that the Iranian messaging that it would not want that to happen will have any impact? And what does well, that mean, right? I mean, if you get into a war that involves Right. I mean, Russia is uh, territorial Armenia's security guarantor. 
Um, what, you know, do, do you think that there is a prospect? We're in a rhetorical phase. Where, where are we on that, do you think? I, I think it's more rhetoric than anything else. It's true. I mean, we, we don't know much history, but the Iranians and the, and the uh, Turks fought lots of wars in the 16th uh, and 17th centuries, uh, and they all have long memories. But the truth of the matter is uh, Turkey is still a NATO member. It would come under tremendous pressure if it tried something like that. Um, they still want some things from the United States. We'd probably sanction them. That would totally not only tank their economy, but tank Mr. Erdogan's chances to be reelected. So I think you're going to get a lot of rhetoric, uh, as there has been with Greece, by the way, uh, over the past six months or so. But uh, I don't think you'll get a, a shooting war. Uh, I hope not, although, as we saw in 2020, uh, Turkey uh, and Israel uh, were instrumental in helping Azerbaijan uh, in uh, the Karabakh war, uh, which uh, was was relatively tectonic and it wasn't abundantly clear whether any Western pressure, you know, it was more sort of the Russians uh, uh, getting involved in order to, to sort of sort it out eventually. Anyway, gentlemen, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate it. Happy New Year to you all. Happy New Year to our audience. Uh, welcome back. Merry Christmas uh, to those celebrating today uh, and tomorrow. All the very best. Have a great week and look forward uh, and a great weekend and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much.